Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Ben Sachs is professor of labor and industry at Harvard Law School. He focuses on the American labor movement and labor law. He teaches on the rise and fall and rise of American labor unions and presents a fascinating window into the heart and soul of America and the ultimate success of democracy over autocracy. He also teaches about the way power might be shared between workers and owners as a template for how divisive world might find common cause. Ben Sachs teaches us a profound lesson today on this edition of TBA Now. Ben Sachs, I am so happy to be speaking with you today because you're a really great and interesting guy. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> I like that. You're skeptic. I got, um, <laughs> no, but, but really and truly, I'm looking forward to our conversation Sam. and the work that you do and how uh, prescient all of this has become given the extraordinary rise in American consciousness of the power and possibilities of union organizing and how it's potentially changing a lot of what we know in response to things that we never imagined would happen in the world of work. But before we get to that, tell us something about how it is you came to find Temple Beth Avodah. Well, it's really attributable to one man, and his name's John Manning, who actually happens to be the dean of the law school where I teach. My family and I moved to to the Boston area about 15 years ago, right uh, after Miriam was born. Miriam's the third of our three daughters. And uh, I came to, to take a, a teaching job at Harvard Law School, where I teach labor and employment law. And we uh, were members of the Newton Center Minion for a while, but when the kids got old enough to want to have a Hebrew school and a bat mitzvah experience, uh, we came to TBA through my friend John and thrilled and happy that we did. Got through a three benot mitzvah? Yeah. Aviva, then Zoe, then Miriam. Yeah. Um, two of them pre-pandemic, one of them right in the middle of the pandemic, and, and you know, all of them great. Did you grow up with much of a Jewish background? Yeah, I mean, um, I grew up in Baltimore and was bar mitzvahed at a temple called Beth Am, which uh, was an inner city synagogue that experienced a lot of the developments that inner city synagogues did. Uh, when 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 the synagogue was built, it was a Jewish neighborhood. By the time I was there, it was no longer, and so it was an interesting place. We we observed the holidays, and my brother and I were both bar mitzvahed, um, but we didn't keep kosher. Uh, or, or anything like that in the house. How does someone end up on the path that you have been walking, specifically uh, involvement with law from an academic perspective as opposed to, you know, practicing law? I think it's, well, okay. So there's, I, I'm going to take that in two ways. One is how I ended up being a legal academic and how I ended up focusing on labor. <laughs> um, and they actually, they have a similar origin. I was in my early 20s, 
And I read an article about a guy named Stoughton Lind, who had been a historian at Yale and had um, kind of gotten kicked out or denied tenure as a result of his activities during the Vietnam War. And Stoughton Lind had given up academics and moved to Youngstown, Ohio, where he was practicing as a labor lawyer, uh, doing interesting things. And so being in my early 20s, I decided I would just write him a letter. <laughs> and I did. And he, he wrote back. And I ended up moving to Youngstown to work with him and uh, spent uh, time doing an oral history of a workers' movement at a company called Packard Electric. And the, the movement was designed not only to make things better at Packard, but to make things better in the union. The union had, had sort of lost its way, <laughs> uh, and, and the workers were organizing both to, to, to re-democratize their union and also to make life better at Packard Electric. And I asked Stoughton at some point during the time that I was living in, in Youngstown, should I become a union organizer? What should I do? And he said, why don't you consider law school? And I think that was partly out of a recognition that I was just not meant to be a union organizer. <laughs> that, that was not going to be my value added in the world. So, so Stoughton recommended that I go to law school, and I did. And I went to Yale. And on, on the day that I visited Yale, there was a, a guy named Kurt Peterson in the hallway handing out buttons for the United Farm Workers in the hall of Yale Law School. And I thought, this is the place for me. <laughs> and so I went to law school with the idea that that was going to be my way of contributing to the labor movement. And I had no intention of being a legal academic. Uh, I love law school, and I, I spent a summer during my first year at a place called the Latino Workers Center in, in New York City, which was organizing uh, uh, immigrant garment workers uh, and providing legal services for them. And I, when I left law school after clerking for a judge, Along with some people I had met during that first summer, we started an organization in a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Bushwick, which has since gentrified, but at the time was um, populated by garment factories. And we started this organization that was then called Make the Road by Walking. Um, my job was to to staff a worker center there. And that's how I started uh, as a lawyer, representing uh, immigrant garment workers who were denied fair wages and, and forced to work in terribly unsafe conditions. That's how I started practicing. You write a letter to Stoughton Lind, who, yes, yeah, so during that time, it was such a cause celeb in the academic community and in the progressive community about what happened to him and, and uh, the forces uh, that be... Did you expect he was going to answer your letter? I didn't know what to expect. And I think I'm a little young to have remembered the Vietnam War era and uh, really know, you know, that he had been such a big uh, deal in, 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 in the movement. And so I think I had uh, some unintended hubris <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in reaching out to him. But I, I was thrilled that, that he wrote back and he, he and his wife, who's still alive, are just uh, phenomenal people. Um, and I, you know, I, I since learned that I was not, I was far from the only person who had gone to Youngstown to, to learn with them and work with them. And, and I'm glad I did. Why were unions established in this country, and why are they such a big deal? That we could spend days on that question. It's such a great question. Um, I, I think we could boil it down to the, the idea that unions are a source of countervailing power for regular working people. And by, by that, I mean that unions allow 
individual working people to come together and collectivize their power, economic and political, and give them a source of power with which they can countervail the power of the wealthy and corporations. So corporations are aggregated capital, aggregated wealth, and standing alone against a corporation, an individual worker has essentially no leverage. And basically, the only source of leverage that individual workers have is their ability to act collectively. And that's what unions are at bottom, a source of collective countervailing power for regular working people. And they have been the most successful form of that kind of power across U.S. history, really across most of the uh, global history, at least global capitalist history. Now, there have been times where that power has been abused. And one form of abuse of that power is when the union becomes uh, corrupt, that it serves its leaders rather than its members. There are historical examples of that, and they're a problem. (laughs) Uh, And there are contemporary examples of that, and they're a problem. Frequency, the prevalence of corruption has been manipulated by anti-union interests and blown out of proportion and used to undermine the the legitimate efforts of legitimate unions. When some employees of Starbucks started getting together and deciding they wanted to actually form a union. I heard a, uh, an interview with Howard Schultz, the, the CEO, the founder, the, the father, truly, of, of Starbucks, who said, you know, unions, we don't need them. We treat our workers really well, and we do a lot for them in terms of the safety of the, the workplace, compensation, medical, et cetera, et cetera. And unionizing actually hampers our ability as a corporation to serve the best interests of our workers. And I I would assume there are other owners of other corporations that perhaps use the same line or something similar. Um, What's the response to that? Well, there's there's so much there. I mean, so the first thing I would say is is just to note that despite Starbucks's reputation and and self-image as a kind of new economy, new type of employer, they are trotting out the old school union busting playbook uh, like I've never seen. And the stuff that Schultz is saying is stuff that uh, employers have been saying since the 1930s. Uh, to try to avoid unions. More substantively, I think there's a number of ways that I think about Schultz's line that you just uh, articulated. One is as a question of democracy. Do we think that we should have democracy in the workplace? By which I mean, the people who work at a company, should they have voice in setting the ter- their own terms and conditions of employment? Or should we have something that more resembles autocracy, where the leader of the company, Schultz in this case, gets to decide what's good for everybody? That's a substantive debate, and that's really about the the debate about unionization. Many people believe, when asked, that Schultz should just have unfettered discretion. It's his company, so he can do what he wants. Yes. I believe, like the, the right drafters of the Wagner Act, which is our labor law, 
that democracy shouldn't stop at the factory gate, so to speak, um, and that uh, people deserve to have democratic voice in the workplace. There are a lot of reasons to hold that position. One of the reasons to hold that position is that it seems like a functioning political democracy actually depends in large measure on the extent to which we allow uh, working people to have democracy uh, at their workplaces. Say more about that, Ben. If people live their lives in you know 40 hours a week or more in an environment that resembles autocracy, they lose the kind of political muscle <laughs> uh, that democracy requires. And on the other side of that coin is if people have dem democratic rights in the workplace, they develop democratic political muscles that they can exercise in the polity. Um, and so if, if, if all you believe in is political democracy, that gives you a reason to support de uh, economic democracy or, or, or workplace democracy. The other thing I'll say is that it's often just not true that unions interfere with firm decision-making and firm productivity, that what unions often are and what they do when they're at their best is they act as a transmission mechanism from workers to management, and they allow workers to contribute their ideas because the workers are no longer afraid of losing their jobs, of being disciplined, of being retaliated against when they say something that's unpopular. So there's, there's a lot of literature that suggests that unions can actually enhance uh, productivity. What unions do that managers like Schultz hates is they shift power. They shift power away from management and towards workers. That's what democracy does. That's what democracy means, that the leaders lose power to the people. And if you have workplace democracy, what you're doing is you're shifting power away from management and towards labor. That often, in the end, enhances productivity. It can improve efficiency, but it shifts power. And man, you see that every day in this business because people don't like giving up power. And, and we're seeing it with Howard Schultz. We're seeing it at Amazon. We're seeing it across the economy. We're seeing it at universities, I should, I should note. And when you, when you threaten people's power, you get sort of visceral reactions of the kind that we're seeing today. You know, it is extraordinary, Ben. I don't know if there's like an explanation for this about maybe we'd say, well, it's human nature. But as you're describing this, it would certainly seem to be, and, and, and maybe not, but it would certainly seem to be the case that a workforce that feels empowered and listened to and respected um, would be more productive, which would only serve ultimately to enhance the bottom line for any corporation, that workers would be happier and more content uh, and therefore would create uh, bigger and better widgets, um, and that the opposition to unionizing seems like a short, maybe uh, there's a loss of some uh, equity in the beginning by giving workers more power, but that in the end, if you are a capital investor in this firm, in this institution, in this company, you're going to be more successful. Is is power its own so significantly its own reward that it would get in the way of perceiving what a union can do for a corporation over a long term? 
Yeah, these are these are great complicated questions. So I do think that a large part of the answer is there's slack between what the owners of the firm might want and what the management of the firm might want. By which I just mean that that even if it's in the long-term interests of the of the company, the managers who are making the decisions on the front line may resent losing their power and may fight unions for that reason. There's a slightly more complicated answer that's the kind of labor law nerdy question, and I'll try it, and you, you can frown at me if I'm getting too much in the weeds. But we like weeds. <laughs> most of the world does collective bargaining differently than the, than the United States. So in most of the world, all across Europe and South Africa and Argentina, they do collective bargaining at the level of the industry. So like imagine you have fast food as an industry. You'd set wages and hours and basic working conditions for the whole industry. And you do that through collective bargaining. So you have all the fast food unions sit down with the fast food employers and they hash out the the, the sort of basic agreement for the industry. Now then then you know the individual firms and stores can work out details differently. But if if you have a minimum wage for the fast food industry as a whole across all of Denmark, say, then there's no reason why McDonald's would fight the union organizing uh, McDonald's workers because Wendy's and Burger King and Taco Bell all have to pay the same wages anyway. So if you do industry-level bargaining, what's called sectoral bargaining, you take away the anti-union incentives from companies, most of them. Because it's going to be across the board, right? a set policy. So in the United States, as an artifact of our history, we do collective bargaining at the workplace level, not even the firm level, but the workplace level. So instead of having a, an agreement that covers all fast food workers in the United States, if you have a union campaign in the United States, you're going to have a contract that covers the McDonald's on Mass Ave. And the owner of the McDonald's on Mass Ave thinks to themselves, well, if I have a union but the McDonald's down the street doesn't, or if, or Wendy's doesn't have a union, then I'm going to be at a competitive disadvantage. And mm. so I'm going to fight the union tooth and nail. And, and that's what we get. And so it, it, one way to fix this problem, which I've been beating a dead horse on for years now, is if, we, if the United States moved in the direction of industry level or sectoral bargaining, we could, we could avoid a lot of the anti-unionism that we're seeing today. It certainly would seem to me to make sense, like uh, strength in numbers and being able to establish the same thing also means that there's a, a greater stability in the workplace. Yes. But they don't like it. They're not interested. I mean, I think <laughs> the choice that many U.S. employers now face is between no unions because our labor law is so weak and the protection so minimal uh, if you if your choice is between no unions and sectoral bargaining, you, you might choose no unions. Yeah, right. What was sort of the the pinnacle of union power? What what period in American history, and what has been significant in its decline? Yeah, in 1935, Congress, as part of the New Deal, enacted uh, a, a law called the Wagner Act, which is now called the National Labor Relations Act. And that gave workers the right to form and join unions. And following 1935, there was an explosion 
of union growth. There are some very famous campaigns, including the sit-down strikes in Flint, Michigan, that led to the unionization of the auto industry. And union density, that is the percentage of workers that were in unions, grew across the next two decades until about 1954, when it hit something like 35%. And then it began a gradual decline. And today we're at about 6% in the private sector uh, of union density. And what we know about that arc is that the higher the union density, the more equal economically our country has been. Mm. And so that the vast inequality that we are living in today, the the vast economic inequality that we're living in today is attributable in large measure, not entirely, but in large measure um, to the decline of the union movement. And of course, um, economic inequality can't be dissociated from political inequality. Uh, and so the, the, the fact that our politics is so unequal today, so captured by the wealthy, is also attributable in large measure to this decline from 35% to 6%. Now, um, one thing that since we're doing history <laughs> that's important to not leave out in this story is the way in which labor law and, and to some extent the union movement has been exclusionary on the grounds of race and gender. The 35 Act that I described was the product of a political compromise where in order to get the law enacted, Roosevelt had to get Southern Democrats on board. And the Southern Democrats insisted that their votes could only be secured if the labor law preserved Jim Crow. And so when when the Wagner Act was passed, it excluded agricultural workers and domestic workers, the two largest industries uh, populated by black workers. And those exclusions uh, led to a labor movement that was uh, primarily white and primarily male. And so even at its at its height, the, the labor movement was unacceptably exclusionary. That's a lot, a big part of that story is a story about law, and that it's less true today, fortunately, but still uh, worth uh, keeping an eye on. It is extraordinary to me the effort that the opposition to teaching critical race theory, that what you're describing right now is so foundational to understanding how racism has played a central role in keeping certain populations uh, excluded from power and from equal treatment in the workplace. And to somehow not see that is extraordinarily significant when it comes to talking about poverty, talking about um, racial inequality currently, is to really be blind to unabashed Racism. I mean, fully. I mean, no one, no one uh, of the Southern de- Democrats. Nobody was trying to couch their language. It was. It was really clear from the beginning. It would seem to me that teaching labor law, the history of it all, is a way of understanding how deeply um, the problem of race affects the future of this country. Yes, it's inseparable. These two things. It's incumbent on those of us who support unions and support labor law to to not gloss over that part of the history. So why do you think more students started taking your class? I mean, you're a very popular professor. I understand that. But the subject matter, why do you think it's what started? Like, did 
Were you surprised when you saw the numbers growing? And if you did see them growing and were gratified, how could you not be? What did you attribute the growing numbers to? Yeah, this is this is a question that I don't think we we can say for sure. Um, but the factors that I think come into play include <laughs> the sense among young people that the economy is not working the way it ought to. And that has a, a number of features, the, the profound inequality that we were talking about before, but also um, the sense and the reality that um, you know one can work hard, go to college, and still have crushing debt, not find a job that uh, is rewarding, not find a job that is reliable, and the economic precarity uh, that so many Americans find themselves living in extends across wide swaths of the younger generations. And I think you couple that with the experience of the pandemic and the tight labor markets that we're, we're, we have today, and um, you have a, a younger generation that's less willing to accept working conditions that are abusive <laughs> and uh, more willing to fight for change. You, you've referred to the growing profound uh, inequality in the United States economy. Like, I, I'm curious, do you have a couple of like perfect examples of where we're at with this at this point? Yes, I do. I had a feeling. <laughs> One of my favorite, you know, that's the misnomer, statistics is... If you took an Amazon worker and compare what an Amazon worker makes to what Jeff Bezos has, it would take that Amazon worker four million years working full time to earn what Bezos has. The richest 20 people in the country now have more wealth than half of the nation put together. Wow. You know, and I should say again, Economic inequality and political inequality go hand in hand. So the, the, the most recent political science we have basically shows that voting patterns in the United States Congress track the preferences of the wealthiest 1% and that the, the government does things that the poorest quartile want only by coincidence. That is only when the poorest folks agree with what the richest want. And so, so we, we have a, we have a, political problem and an economic problem. Now, if someone were listening to you with who profoundly disagreed, might they say something like, look, uh, this is a free enterprise country. Uh, Jeff Bezos uh, worked hard to achieve his wealth. That wealthiest 1% didn't get there by accident. They got there because of hard work and intelligence a genius one might even say, smart investing, and you know, you're seeking through unionizing, et cetera, you're you're taxing their success, and that in turn gums up the gears of capitalism, which in its you know purest form can take anybody who can raise themselves up by their bootstraps uh, to achieve anything they want. I mean, there's a lot I would disagree with about that description. And, but the thing that I would say is, is this the kind of world you want? Whatever the mechanism, do you want a world in which somebody has to work 4 million years to possess what someone, another individual has? 
do you want a world in which 20 people command the resources of half the country? And and what flows from that is is not not just inequality but poverty and precarity and inequality. And I don't I don't want that world. And you know, the, ultimately for me, unions as just back to where we started, unions are a way of countervailing the power of the wealthy to build a more equitable world. Okay, so how come people who are living lives on the poverty line why do they seem to vote against their interests? <laughs> Could you ask me some harder questions? <laughs> <laughs> Not being a political scientist, I'm going to take that question and 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 answer it about unions, um, which is I, what I thought you were going to ask me, which is if if unions are so great, why are, do and you, people have a tr- uh, ability to vote for a union? Why do we only have six percent of workers in unions? And, also a great question. I'm glad yeah. you asked. <laughs> <laughs> and probably a little easier than the one you asked me. And and so the answer to that question is actually something like 50% of people, if you ask them today, say they want to be in a union. And they can't be in a union because it's incredibly hard to form one. And we're seeing that played out on the in the news stories about Starbucks. If, if you try to form a union in the United States, you got about a one in five chance of getting fired. Hmm. The management will threaten to close your your store or close your store. All these things are illegal, but uh, they do it anyway. And so it's just really, really difficult to to form a union. And so the the reason that we don't have more unions is not because people don't want them, but because the law makes it so hard to form one. As you uh, survey um, the union scene in America right now, what unions... Are you looking at and thinking, you know, uh, these guys are in ascendance. They're 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 clicking. There's some powerful leadership here that's making a difference. What are a couple that that you're looking at that you think are uh, doing great work? Well, this is this is a really. I mean, from the academic perspective, this is a very interesting moment for the union movement because a lot of the action, a lot of the excitement, and a lot of the dynamism seems to be coming from what are called independent unions rather than established affiliated unions. So um, the Amazon workers weren't really part of a union, the Amazon workers that won uh, the election in, in New York. They were led by a guy named Christian Smalls, who just was an incredible organizer and did something that nobody thought could be done, which was to organize an Amazon warehouse. And they did that sort of outside the establishment uh, labor movement. Starbucks workers are also organizing in an independent union. They're supported by one of the leading and most progressive unions in the country, which is SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Footnote, I used to work there. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, I haven't for for 15 years, but I, I was an assistant general counsel of that union. And I think they're terrific. But um, I think we're going through a moment of transition where the the young gener- younger generation that we were talking about before seems to want something new. Uh, so they're they're unionizing, but they're they're unionizing outside of of traditional labor unions. And so that's something important to to keep an eye on. And um, there, there are a lot of uh, terrific people in the traditional labor movement who are saying, you know, our job is to support this new wave of worker organizing. And if, if it's going to be independent unions, then we have to support that. 
Um, and that seems to me probably the, the right approach. And one would hope that if these independent unions uh, are continue to be successful, that their success will redound to the benefit of the older, more established unions in terms of the methodologies they might be using and the context they might be uh, achieving. Yeah, I run, one of the things I do is I run a blog called On Labor. And I had a student write a piece recently called, Does the Union Movement Speak Meme? I, I can't reproduce it here because I, I'm generationally on the wrong side of it. But uh-huh. but the whole piece is about the use of social media the, the, in, the, in the Starbucks campaign, the use of memes as a, as a kind of language of organizing that um, people in my, my generation, I'm only 51, have just are clueless about. So, so it's, it, was, it was fascinating. I have a, another hard question for you, Ben. It's this uh, notion of, you know, the great resignation. I like uh, the coffee at Blue Bottle uh, Cafe in, on the street in Newton. And uh, I like going there sometimes late afternoon uh, for some espresso. It's sort of the, the, the pick-me-up time. And more than one occasion I've walked by and it's been closed because I guess the company mandates there has to be a, at least a certain number of workers hmm. uh, on site to keep the doors open and they close because they don't have enough workers. I, we've all been in restaurants where the service just uh, is beyond appalling and they, they profusely apologize and suggest that, you know, the chef is also running the dishwasher. In all of this, what is your sense of the current labor scene? And, and, and then, of course, the, to make it even harder, one of these existential uh, questions, what is the future of work in America? <laughs> One way I think about the great resignation is to contrast the act of quitting with the act of forming a union. And I think this is relevant to, to Howard Schultz and Starbucks. You know, in a tight labor market, workers have the ability to quit, and they are ex- a lot of them are exercising that power. Workers who stick around and try to form a union are workers who care about their company and want to make it better. And it goes back to what we were talking about before, about the ways that unions can contribute to a company's bottom line rather than detract from it. So, you know, if I were talking to Howard Schultz, I would say all these workers who are forming, trying to form unions at Starbucks are not workers who are quitting. Right. They're workers who are who are staying and fighting to make this job and this company a better place. And it seems to me that those are the kind of workers you'd want to have around. That kind of goes with how significantly COVID has contributed to answering this question about the future of work, particularly as it relates to being in the office uh, versus working from home and how all of that is part of the future of work question. Gosh, yeah. So, I mean, COVID has done so much to the world of work. I mean, one thing it's done is it's, I think, highlighted the way in which so many workers who are heretofore invisible, by which we mean invisible to consumers, are are no longer invisible. And I think that's had some productive effects. I think it's it's given uh, a lot of workers more of a sense of the, their right to demand uh, better working conditions and um, maybe given society at large a, a healthier view of their rights to those healthier working conditions. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the it's always impossible to predict technology. I mean, the, the, the one sort of trope in labor economics is every time we think that technology is going to displace all the workers, we what we learn is that technology just gives rise to new jobs and ultimately more jobs. There's a debate now, and I'm not a labor economist, but there's a debate now about whether this technological revolution will be different and, and actually give rise to true structural technological unemployment. And, you know, if if chat GPT takes over the world and, and can do things better than any human being can can do, maybe we will have fewer jobs. And And if that's the case, then we have to really start thinking about what a world looks like with less work. And the question of who owns the technology and who profits from the technology will become an existential question. You know, who owns the robots owns the world. But, you know, we've been we've been through this before and, and have managed to to adjust. But maybe maybe this time will be different. Ben, it's it's been really a great pleasure to um, to talk with you and to listen to your take on such a really significantly important subject for our country, which is the world of work and how people are treated um, and the way that reflects on the values and the, the destiny of this country. And it's sobering as we look around lots of countries who are in their own kind of struggle with the future of democracy and the rights of individuals as citizens and as workers versus the rise of autocracy and the challenge to fundamental freedoms. And as you've described it, to know and understand the workings of unions is a true window into the potential for success, for growth, for evolution in this country uh, versus a, a breakdown of fundamental democratic values that ostensibly were promised to the citizens uh, a couple centuries ago. Yeah, there's certainly there's certainly a very deep connection between everything we've been talking about and the future of democracy. I mean, in some ways, unions are at their best about a deeper form of democracy, one that extends beyond the political realm into the everyday lives of, of citizens. Um, and when when that form of democracy is lost, it's a threat to the political democracy that we treasure. Well, with that, my friend, thanks so much. We, did, we know we didn't talk uh, jazz that we we're listening to. Uh, we'll save that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we wish you well. And uh, thanks for being on TVA now. Thanks for having me, Rabbi. Find all of our episodes on BethAvodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonconagy, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman. Mm-hmm.